and welcome to We Are History, the laughable attempt at a podcast with me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. This week, Angela's going to be leading on a subject very close to her heart. It's it's because she's a lady. She's obsessed with marriage. <laughs> I she, am. That's right, John. Ever when, since I was a little girl. It's going to be the greatest day in your life, Angela. <laughs> You're a princess for a day. Oh, all eyes on me. It's all I, I've ever dreamed of, John, is to be somebody's wife. I tell you Doesn't what, though, Angela. Who. I tell you what, that's true. I tell you, <laughs> take what you can get at your age, Angela. <laughs> yeah, cheers. I tell, you what, right. I tell you what, you start off by sinking into his arms and you end up with your arms in his sink. That's what hey, they say. Hey, hey, Yeah, right. Oh, dear. No, well, there we are. Now we've lost no. half the listeners. We can press on. So, Angela <laughs> is getting married this year. Is that right? Yeah, later this well, year. Well, all be well with all the COVID caveats that there are. COVID um, caveats. I, was, I, I sort of stumbled across this as a topic because yes i am getting married this year and i am having a humanist wedding oh here we go uh, in fact that yeah i'm not i'm ignoring that the um the celebrant at our wedding is the lovely susan ray newsreader of radio oh. four fame oh that's um, a very good continuity so yeah. it will be very well spoken word well she will be we won't Right. I, I wanted a humanist wedding for a number of reasons, but a humanist wedding still isn't legally recognised in England and Wales. It is in Scotland and Northern Ireland um, and the Channel Islands. That's weird, isn't it? But not in England and Wales. And um, there, there's lots of the humanists UK are doing lots of campaigning to try and get it recognised. And it is very outdated. What frustrates me about it, because I, I tweeted about this the other day, and of course you get all the people on Twitter, well, all you have to do is have a separate legal ceremony. And I'm like, yeah, I know that. But that means I have two wedding dates and I don't I, want two wedding dates. I want one. Were those people correcting you on the legal facts or pointing out legal facts? Were they men? How did you guess, John? How <laughs> did you guess? Yes, there should I'd be a say special 90% word of them men, were. <laughs> there should be a special word for men explaining things. Do you know what, though? I, I'm not like while mansplaining is a thing. Oh, and it that's is good. That's definitely. <laughs> I, let me, shush, John, let me mansplain mansplaining to you. <laughs> while it is definitely a thing. I do think, and, and while it is mostly men, it is not as clear-cut gender. I think it's a type of person. Yeah, yeah. That uh, So I think we should just call it splaining, which is mm. when you explain something to someone who already knows, but you right. feel still that you have to tell them. Yes. It, and it, you can tell the tweets are signified because they always start with something like, actually. actually, I think you'll find, or, but surely, or yeah. why don't you? And when- then, where does, anyway. where does a man get his water from? From a well, actually. Yay, lovely. <laughs> like it. We haven't just come on this podcast to chat about Angela's wedding. This is a history of marriage and weddings down the millennia. It is. I mean, particularly, it, we're, we're focusing it in in Britain because well, obviously yes. marriage laws are different everywhere. Yes. Um, and, and it's about sort of the laws of marriage rather than anything else, sort of how it's marriage has changed over time. And those laws so, probably reflecting sort of uh, the status of marriage and the culture from which they spring. Very um, much so, telling, so yeah. Telling us all about that. So I'm intrigued. You're leading on this one, Angela. You've researched I it because you're obsessed with marriage it's and so wedding. So obsessed with marriage. Yeah, yeah. It's so, all I can think about. I think Matt's going through with it, do you? Well, I hope so because we posted the invitations today. So oh, right. <laughs> he's, he's going to have a lot of explaining to do if it doesn't. He's training as a runner, isn't he? To run, run he, very fast yeah. in one direction. <laughs> do you know, he is a runner. My fellow's an ultra marathon runner and lovely Jeremy Hardy 
when we did news quiz, every time I'd see him, he'd ask how Matt was and uh, he'd say, oh, was he doing any crazy marathons, you know? And one day he just looked at me and he just went, he's running from something, Barnsley, and my money's on it being you. <laughs> Cheers, Jeremy. Oh, lovely. lovely. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, sorry to be a pedant and a you know and one of those people on Twitter going, but how come? But isn't a civil, go. isn't a civil service, a civil wedding with mm. just a humanist type reading? Is that not recognisable as a humanist wedding? No, for several reasons. Um, one being there's still a script that you have to use. There's oh, still I a, see. There's, there's um, I think there's like three or four maybe more uh, yeah. choices of script, but it's still very prescribed and you can only do them in registered places. Right. So I, I know where I want my wedding. I know what I want it to include and I know what I don't want it to include, but I think it should still be legally recognised. You know, I don't mind. We are two days before our wedding. We're going to the registry office and we're right. signing the thing and it will all be very quick and it's just the legal bit as far as we're uh, concerned. Right. That's not our wedding ceremony. But what upsets me is legally my anniversary is on a different day to my actual yeah, yeah. do you see what i mean that's I do, what i don't yeah. like my, about my, it my son had to do this marrying and uh he married a lovely american girl and they yeah. had to get the legal bit done as quickly as possible and then we could organize her parents coming over from america mm. and we did a thing at the ritzy in brixton and that was great and then back over there they had a whole thing with a minister the parents were very keen to have a religious aspect so there was a yeah uh, there was a minister over there so they had three weddings so when i gave my speech i went you know Everything's bigger in America. The ice cream, the cars, the buildings. And with with weddings, you get three times the portions, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, that is a weird thing. They they celebrate the actual legal date, I think. I, I think yeah. It's up to you which one you want to choose. You can well, just say. Totally, of course it is. Of course yeah. it is. I, I just don't like that we don't have... And particularly as, you know, if we were in Scotland... Our wedding would be legal. Right. So like Gretna Green. If you ran over, the, ran over the border to Gretna Green. Exactly. That's what got me sort of on this trail is just looking at, yeah. at, at the history of, of marriage as a concept rather than, you yeah. know. And, and what I could have done here, John, I yeah. know, you know, this is my research, so it's slightly longer than yours. <laughs> what I could have done here was started with, you know, human pairings and how we went from groups to pairs and hominids evolved. But I haven't done oh, that, John. Oh, many, there'll be Lucky many listeners you, disappointed. I've only gone back to the fifth century. Okay. So relatively recent. Okay. Really. That's in, in Andrew's <laughs> in book, notes. that is yesterday. <laughs> so take me back to the fifth century uh, AD, Angela, and how did people get married then? So fifth century AD was when the idea of a formalised marriage began. And it was, um, people didn't marry for love in those days. Marriage was a strategic tool. Like sometime right. in the early sort of Anglo-Saxon period, um, it, it was a way to establish peaceful relationships with your neighbours. Listeners all over the country picturing their neighbour and going, okay, I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that would <laughs> be a bit... Don't do that anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a way of surviving, really, because obviously it was tribal pretty yeah. much in, in that time. And so if your neighbouring tribe rather than war with them if you could marry your daughter to their son makes an alliance then it makes an alliance and it's a way yeah. of pacifying your neighbor rather than fighting with them it's to, tough on the know, kids though to be a pawn in the neighborly negotiations all the time yeah but that's that's just how it was i mean we think now we think of arranged marriage as being a thing that they do in other countries yeah but all marriage was arranged to begin with. You yeah. know, that's what marriage was. It was an arrangement of families and strategic alliances. It wasn't to do with 
love. It, they weren't like, and you know, who you loved and who you married weren't necessarily the same person. Right. Um, yes. Who married who was decided not by you. It was decided by tribal leaders, by your parents. By yes. you would be matched up to people according to your childbearing potential or where these alliances needed to be built, which neighbour you needed to to have peaceful yes. resolution with and stuff. So it was very much that's what marriage was. And that would have been in, in pre-Christian Britain. Pre-Christian times, yeah. Right. Sorry to go back even further, but I'm <laughs> getting, I mean, the Romans had wives. So, I mean, you're just talking about in English society, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. That's why I focused it on this, because, I mean, yeah, we could yeah. go back to the ancient yeah, yeah. world yeah, and, and their yeah. sort of, but I thought we'd focus it on Britain, otherwise on, we'll, this on, will be a six-hour-long podcast. <laughs> that's quite right. So, uh, we're into Christian Britain now. 597. AD, Pope Gregory I sends a mission from Rome led by Augustine to convert the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. Now, it was uh. actually quite an easy job because the most powerful man in Anglo-Saxon Britain at that point was Ethelbert, the King of Kent. Oh, uh, that is classic to... Kent person talking. <laughs> West, Wessex was harder than we We could have no, had you. You Kent, Kent was where it was at, no, mate. Wessex, mate. Maidenhead. That's where it was at. <laughs> Thames Valley. Classic. Oh, we're Kent. We were the most powerful. Oh, I love that we're keeping the Kent and Wessex rivalry alive, John, you and yeah, I. a bunch of dupes. <laughs> <laughs> Wondered what you were going to say then. Yeah, you have to be careful with the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to hear more about Ethelbert, King of Kent, you can listen to our episode on Ethelred the Unready, which was basically a list of me going through all the Anglo-Saxon kings. You've got <laughs> a long journey, everyone. <laughs> so... Ethelbert, King of Kent, was a pagan, but because he wanted to form a peaceful alliance with his neighbours, he married Bertha, who was the daughter of the King of the Franks, and they were Christians. Okay. That whole mission was based on a naff pun. I think I don't know if we did this in the previous one, but uh, Gregory was in the marketplace in Rome. Yeah. There were some slaves for sale, and he said, well, who are those blonde children? And they mm. said, oh, sir, they are angles. He went, not, not angles, but angels. And everyone went, oh, it's very good, very good, very good. Oh, bravo. No one dared tell him it was a shit pun. (laughs) But obviously my name being Angela. Of course. I remember when I was at primary school, I could never write the word angel without automatically putting an A at the end of it. So my stories were all about how the Angela Gabriel spoke (laughs) to Mary. So they're converted to Christianity, you know, very quickly. Yeah, king of the Anglo-Saxons now Christian and Christianity begins to take hold. And by the ninth century, is the dominant religion. So over the next sort of 400 years, yes. it becomes the dominant religion in Britain. Now, it's worth saying that a lot of what you sort of read about the history of marriage is very much about what the important people were doing. Yes. Um, in the, you, your lower classes, for the first eight centuries that marriage was a thing, yeah. for the important people, the church didn't really give a toss what anyone else was doing. Yes, I mean, I think this is probably true for those hundreds of years you're talking around, that in rural Britain, I've read somewhere that pagan sort of folklore and traditions continued for centuries. It's like saying Brazil is a Christian country. If you go deep into the Amazon jungle, you know, it won't be. Yeah. And same with East Anglia. <laughs> so, yeah. from, it would have been different to London. You know. Exactly. So people were still practising what they'd always practised yeah, in yeah. Their, their sort of more pagan rituals yeah. and stuff. So when we talk up, yeah. about... It being a dominant Christian country, it took that long for it to filter through to, to yeah. sort of these communities. They still had marriages and they still made alliances. You'd still mm-hmm. want to be on good terms with the small holding next to yours or whatever. And it was still 
largely parents that paired off. Right. The ch- it's just that the the church yeah. didn't really give a shit what you were yeah. doing at that. I've, point. I've lost. I've and, lost. I've lost your plow. You know, I borrowed your plow. I've lost it, but you can have my daughter. But you can have my daughter <laughs> instead. That's fair. Fair swap, I'd say. And of course, at this time, serfdom is still a thing across right. Europe. So in the Middle Ages, lots of poor people were legally bound to a lord and his lands. Yes. Um, and so not only were your parents exercising control over who you married, the lord would yeah. as well. Um, you know, so he could prevent his serf from marrying a woman from another manor if it didn't suit his. And they even had the right to choose husbands for their tenants' daughters. And in some cultures, the droit de seigneur where they had the right to sleep with the virgin the night before her wedding day. Actually, that's apparently a myth. I think it's very rare, is what I was say. I think think it was very rare. It's in Braveheart and it's in uh, Marriage of Figaro, but uh, I don't think it was widespread. There seems to be very little evidence of it actually happening, according to the book that I read, Okay. By the way, the book that I read for this is called Marriage, A History by Stephanie Kuntz. The book is very much about the global history of, of marriage so i use that but but it's very interesting so is there a danger with people marrying their neighbors they're going to marry their cousins and marry their brothers well and sisters? yeah this this is really interesting actually so where we are now in the 21st century you can marry your first cousin should you want to um lots of people do particularly in certain i, I mean i'm not going to mention norfolk <laughs> particularly <laughs> but i'm actually about to marry a man from norfolk and are i'm you? not his and cousin he's, he's not so his cousin. you know it's yeah, um you're marrying yeah. your sister it's good enough for your mother and i John, we're better than this. We're we better are, than Norfolk. Norfolk I got um, complaints when I put all those jokes, jokes in my books. There's somebody yes. saying Norfolk had more um, influx of immigrants from the Vikings and the Saxons. And they go, yeah, 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 yeah. It is true. Yeah. Sorry, Norfolk. Yeah. Sorry, Norfolk. Tell me more about incestuous marriages. This isn't an interest of mine, by the way. Yeah, I said, why, you say, why do you want to know more about this? The opportunity for marriage obviously isn't like it is today, where basically... Yeah. You know, we travel no and no we go then. places. No Tinder. There's no Tinder, John. No. And there was no, you know, you wouldn't necessarily meet people from anywhere About more than village. five miles yeah. away from where you, you lived, you know. Yeah. So um, it it was very likely that quite a lot of incestuous marriages happened. However, the rules changed regularly through the centuries to the point where it's really unclear when the changes happened as to what constituted an incestuous marriage because those people in charge would use rules on incestuous marriage as ways to get out of marriage. Divorce wasn't a thing. No. At this point, marriage was supposed to be for life. But if you found out that, oh, no, you're actually my seventh cousin first removed, right. I, I now have to divorce you. So whereas we, we imagine that they were all marrying their cousins in the Middle Ages and they were all... D- actually, they weren't. And it was a remarkable amount of... Um, distance you had to have at certain times in the middle ages in order to marry because people would use that as an excuse to right that's interesting does that make sense yeah it does in iceland you can get your dna test now and you can sort of there's an i think there's an app where you can start dating someone because it's such a small pool of people you can can just mark you know look on your phone no we're not cousins let's go to bed you know (laughs) but there was there was um there was a time at some point in the middle ages when they ruled that marrying relatives of your godchildren was incestuous. Okay. And, you know, so the rules fluxed all the time, but actually the the it was much more distant than it is today. But currently, as they stand, John, if you want to marry your first cousin, I mean, you probably have to have a word with Jackie first. Yeah. But if you wanted to marry your first cousin, technically you could. I'm good. I'm good, thanks. Um, 
<laughs> I've got 41 of the buggers to choose from. Have you really? Got yeah. Like three or something. Yeah, I've got loads of them. So we now are in the 12th century. Okay. Okay, we've skipped forward a bit. 600 years of marriage being a, a thing in Britain. Yeah. Um, but it's not until the 12th century, really, there's this first step towards it being not just a, a sort of power or economic arrangement. It's a first step towards it being about the couple rather than just their families and I see. what it means. So there was a Benedictine monk called, I think, Gratian, Gratian, Gratian. Gratian. Who no. knows? Anyway, I mean, lots of people know, but we don't. No. But he decided that the consent of the couple mattered more than their family's consent. Okay. The consent of the couple had never been taken into account. This Quite point. forward looking of the uh, of, of Gratian. Yeah, absolutely. For a sort of Catholic doctrine writer, yeah. he brought the idea of consent into the fold of this formalised marriage arrangement in 1140. Uh, he wrote a canon law textbook. Um, canon law is, is church law, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, everything at this point is canon law, yes, pretty much. Um, everything's governed by that. So he writes a, a canon law textbook, the Decretum Graciani. Oh. And this is the first time where couples are required to give their verbal consent Wow. And to consummate the marriage in order to forge a marital bond. I have to say, Angela, reading through your notes, the consummation of the marriage seems to play two part seems to play too big a part in the interests that the clergy have in weddings. They're always like, Yeah, did they did they consume the marriage though? Did they did they <laughs> did they have sexual I, intercourse in I the marital bed? I don't know bed? if it was all just dirty monks wanting to know. Um I think that the main reasons for consummation being a thing were and this feels to us now what we know about power and sex and things. Yeah. This feels weird. But consummation was seen as a way of the couple giving consent. Okay. By consummating the marriage, they were consenting to it. Because before that, the bride and groom just being present at the ceremony was enough. Right. But they had no choice in that, really. That's Obviously, we know now that sometimes people have no choice in consummation either. But that's a no, whole quite. different I mean, subject. you get these sort of uh, uh, films set in sort of... Russian countryside in the 19th century where they sort of roll out the bedsheet to show that blood was spilled on the wedding yeah, night. And they would yeah. cheer and so, a bit, bit embarrassing, I'd say, if you're the bit embarrassing. And also not foolproof that, you know, so no. not all women bleed. So there were lots of women who were chastised for not being virgins who were virgins. They just didn't, you know, bleed. didn't bleed. So it's, um, yeah. it's all, it's all. I'm sorry, it's a four, I'm not sure it's a, a very satisfactory system, if I'm honest. No. And also the technical definition of consummation is an act which could result in procreation, right? Uh, okay. So it has to be full penetrative works and it has to be without contraception for it to be okay. technical. Oh, okay. So even today, a heterosexual marriage can still be annulled on the grounds of non-consummation, but a homosexual marriage can't be... Right, of course annulled on it because obviously in a homosexual right. procreation is not a possibility no, so well. interesting yeah so this book sort of formed the foundation for the church's marriage policies at this time and it spoke about clerical marriage which obviously not allowed under the catholic yeah. doctrine big mistake um, big mistake if you want to, you don't want your priests turning out a bit weird just let them get married guys just like yeah. it's, a, it's not this is this is going to come back and bite you later on. Not well, letting the priest seen, marry. I haven't really included this in the notes, so I won't go on about it too much. But in that book that I was talking about, there's a really interesting section about how um, 
celibacy was seen as a as a sort of way to because women were devil women who trying oh God, to tempt men yeah, you know always. it was always the women that had the agency and so it was always yeah. a woman's fault obviously if a priest was tempted out of yeah. celibacy it was that damn harlot's fault every time you know so could anyone get married was it like was there, were there age limits the only rules at this point for governing marriage are that the couple have to publicly declare their intent to be husband and wife right and they have to be 14 if you're a boy, 12 if you're a girl. Well, that's a disaster. First Which all, is a what disaster. What 14-year-old boy reasons. can publicly even talk to a girl? It's like, it's <laughs> well, like time embarrassed. <laughs> I, think, time. I think the things to remember are, one, you know, at this time in the Middle Ages, 14 makes you middle-aged. Well, no, the way Pretty it would much. have been done in those days, it would have been their mates saying, hey, Degsy loves you, shut up. <laughs> Degsy loves you, will you go out with my mate? and i think the other thing to remember is as well that betrothals would happen with children but they weren't necessarily consummated until much later i hope not i hope not it does make us recoil when we go oh girls are getting married at 12 but it's like they were betrothed at 12 were they you know it's a different and actually people were betrothed that there's a story i read about like a two-year-old being betrayed. Yes, I think it's happening and, in royalty as and well. And because you had to publicly declare your own intent to get married, she would be like prompted by her mum, like, now say <laughs> oh yes, God. I give consent. I'm, and the little two-year-old, yes, I give consent. I'm sure there's you some know, sort of, yeah, I'm sure there's some little children's shows in the southern states of America where they dress them up and make them do this. <laughs> Very possibly. Little Miss Sunshine type pageants. (laughs) (laughs) So where are we now? We're we're still in the 12th century? So at this point, you're married. If you didn't have to, there were ceremonies, pagan ceremonies and stuff, but you didn't have to have a ceremony to be married. All you had to do is say, we're married. Or we want to be married. And then you're married. Right. Yeah, much cheaper. Tell me about it. No bridal shower. No, you know, uh, planning dinner. None of that. that. None of that. There were different customs. One of them uh, involved a couple jumping over a broomstick, which is where the phrase... Jump the broomstick comes from for sort okay. of quick marriages. But until the 12th century, that's all you needed for a marriage to be valid. And then step forward, Peter Lombard, Bishop oh. of Paris. Because consummation confirmed marriage, right? You were betrothed and then at consummation you were married, right? So, so the Bishop of Paris goes, I'm the Bishop of the City of Love. Well, he pointed out if yeah. consummation is the point at which you're married, yeah. that means Mary and Joseph weren't married. Right. Well, wasn't the father of Mary's baby God? Well, allegedly, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, but, yeah. So was she then married to God? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah. all very confusing, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't stand up to a great deal of scrutiny, if we're honest, Angela. It doesn't. But what Lombard <laughs> then said was, right, okay, this idea of it only being consummated at the point of... of procreation is is nonsense as long as you make a promise in the present tense i take you as my husband i take you as my wife that legally makes a wedding okay so that's where that came from now this put the church in a slightly awkward position right um because they had to go along with what the bishop of paris had said but what this meant was that young couples that wanted to get married without their parents approval could just say, yeah. I take you, I take you, ha, we're married, deal with it's it. It's like the modern equivalent of the compass tattoo in the arm. In the, exactly. In, in double maths. Exactly. <laughs> Done it now, what are you going to do? Um, so the Fourth Lateran Council, John. Oh, uh, that one, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I mean, I've, I've read a lot about that. They decreed at this council that for a marriage to be valid, three things were necessary. One, the bride had to have a dowry. 
Two, the bans had to be published beforehand. And three, the wedding had to take place in a church. Okay, we're getting quite modern then, really. So now we're getting to the point of really formalising that ceremony. Yeah, and a service that we would recognise today. And for a church wedding today, you still have to have your bans read. Uh, yep. ban, the word bans, it means proclamation. So the bans are a public announcement of a forthcoming marriage, which would be made in the parish church for three yep. Sundays in a row prior to the wedding and it gave a chance for any objections to be made to the yeah, wedding so I remember when uh, Gordon Brown was marrying Sarah I think they wanted it done in secret but they, they read the bands in the church and it was like John Gordon Brown and I think just like three old pensioners there it didn't get out it was like there was like <laughs> No journalist was hanging around in there, you know. No. And eventually, I think eventually somebody told somebody, but I think they got away with it for a week or two. Wow. At this point, parents still obviously made these decisions disregarding their children's wishes. You know, although people were starting to get married from their own consent, you were very much owned by your parents. And there was a story of um, in 1413, there were two fathers from Derbyshire and they signed a marriage contract for their children, but they... They left the bride's name blank because he hadn't decided which daughter he was going to marry off yet. Oh, He's like, I'll decide, so... <laughs> I'll decide on the day. I'll decide on the day which one's pissing life. me off most. <laughs> which one goes? Uh, Ib, dib, sky blue. <laughs> Who's it? Not you. It's bad, isn't it? It wouldn't make much of a Jane Austen novel, would it, really? <laughs> it's funny. Well, we'll come on to when, when things yeah. really change in a bit. So at this point... I'm presuming lots of children were born out of wedlock. Uh, how did that fit into all of this? So um, while... You know, the peasants, if you like, mm-hmm. were still scrutinising who should marry whom and building these alliances. A bit. The order in which childbirth and marriage happened didn't really matter. I like the way you said who married whom there. Oh, at the yes. The, at the beginning of the podcast, it was who, if you don't mind me saying, it was who married who. But you've come on a bit since this podcast <laughs> has developed and the grammar has did improved. Did I say who married who earlier? At the beginning you did, yeah, yeah. But now oh, it's whom and I'm, I'm pleased to see, you know, <laughs> I'm as learning, you get closer John. to your wedding day... <laughs> You're more and more suitable. So they were cavalier. Yeah, well, they, it just wasn't particularly of a concern to a peasant community if a child was born out of wedlock. No. There was a letter written by the Bishop of Lincoln in the 13th century. In this yeah. letter, it noted that the traditional custom during a wedding, if the couple already had a child born before yeah. the ceremony, they would stretch what they called a care cloth over right. the child as the couple knelt in front of the altar, and that would legitimise the child somehow. Yeah, of course, that does it. That um, do it. So, according to common law, however, like the state law, the subsequent marriage of a couple didn't legitimise their child. But peasants just ignored that. Yeah, there must have been a lot of it about. Who cared? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, no contraception at this time. So there was some contraception, I think, that they used sort of hankies and things like that in the Thello, isn't it? Isn't the hanky found in Desdemona's uh, boudoir evidence? You and I both know, John, that a hanky is very absorbent. They hadn't invented crisp packets at that point, (laughs) so you know. But at this time, a woman who didn't marry the father of her child wasn't necessarily considered damaged goods in these peasant communities you know it wasn't wow. she wasn't outcast she wasn't and there's some records that i saw from um Halzorin manor which i think is in the midlands isn't it yeah um between 1270 and 1348 that estimates that for every two women who gave birth in marriage one woman gave birth out of wedlock wow same in the midlands now are they could well probably probably the other way around um <laughs> but many of these women still went on to marry quite well which yeah. shows that there wasn't really a stigma attached no. otherwise they wouldn't have been able to subsequently marry so now we, we sort of come to the early modern period 16th century marriage in britain starts to undergo quite a lot of changes so obviously we know about henry the eighth yeah he got married a few times 
he got married once or twice. Yeah. Obviously, the big thing about Henry VIII was his divorce from Catherine of Aragon in order to marry Anne Boleyn. He had oh, two yeah. divorces, didn't he? One for adultery, one for treason in the it end. He was but... uh, divorced, beheaded, beheaded su survived. No, died. Divorced, divorced beheaded, beheaded, died. Survived. Uh, sorry, yeah. And you remember yeah. what Mark Steele's <laughs> joke about the modern royal family? No. <laughs> divorced, 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 crashed. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Yeah, that must be a massive deal then. Henry VIII must be sort of changing the divorce laws or making divorce sort of... Well, yes and no. I mean, what changed more than divorce? Divorce remained, and we'll come on to divorce in a bit, but it remains pretty um, much not a thing for quite some mm. time afterwards. Um, what it changed, obviously, was the whole structure of religion <laughs> in right. Britain. So up until... he, Because Henry had been a defender of the Catholic faith against the teachings yeah. of Martin Luther... Um, you know, and he only really changed his mind about that when it suited him. A bit like Boris yeah, Johnson yeah. of his day. Yeah, oh, yeah. So the former Archbishop of Canterbury was Thomas Cranmer, who granted the divorce after the English Reformation. So yes. because Henry wanted a divorce, the Catholic faith wouldn't allow it. So they turned to the Protestants, who, who would. Yes. And then in 1549, Thomas Cranmer scripts the first wedding vows for the Church of England in his Book of Common Prayer. It's a great read. But if you're going to buy it, buy in a bookshop, people. Don't buy on Amazon. If you're buying the <laughs> 1549 <laughs> Book of Common Prayer. So you have... Cram, let Cranmer get some money for this. It's not fair. So in 49, you've got the, the act of uniformity, which makes, essentially, we're now a Protestant country. Um, yeah. And the Book of Common Prayer contained the first wedding vows written entirely in English. And it's pretty much the same as what we know today, John. Got all the greatest hits are there. To have and to, to, hold. Have to hold. Yeah. From this day forward, better for worse, richer for poorer. All of that. To love, there. honour and obey. You're going to obey, Matt. Of and course I am, John. Yes, of course. <laughs> Could you imagine? I cannot imagine else. <laughs> I remember it being a bit of a scandal when uh, Princess Di or Lady Diana Spencer, mm. she was then, was not going to have a bay in her wedding vows. It was like all over the front pages. Yeah. He's going to be king, to be fair, but never mind. I don't think that's what did for the marriage. I don't think honest, it is. Much. And to be fair, <laughs> if he was going to be king anyway, well, we're all supposed to obey him, aren't we? That's so, true. You know, that's true. tautology. Yeah. So she thought it was a tautology. Would, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> so um, it was basically all stolen from the Catholic medieval rites of marriage anyway, but right. um, uh, that was in Latin, so, you know. And yeah. at this point now, um, the clergy are also permitted to marry. So if you're a Church of England clergyman, you are now allowed to marry. So if it's all in Latin, the answers were in the back in English, I presume, in the last page. If you flick to the back page, that's a joke that only works for people my age who studied Latin. Right, OK. So... <laughs> <laughs> Your age and class, John, let's be honest. Uh, yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> so the Catholic church as a sort of act of counter-reformation against this in their council of trent john so you remember we had the um council of trent yeah yeah this is the council of trent which is not like nottinghamshire this is trento in italy trent council trent um, council yeah, yeah. Uh, lab 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 now largest party <laughs> remains in no overall control this is the 19th ecumenical <laughs> council of trent council of trent yes prompted by yeah. the the protestant reformation don't say i never take you out don't say i never give you a good time we're going to the ecumenical council of trent oh thank you darling <laughs> so this is um i mean since the 12th century the roman catholics referred to marriage as a sacrament but it wasn't till 1563 at the council of trent where it was officially made 
the marriage ceremony a sacred ceremony a sacrament in its oh, in its own right and for the first time the validity of marriage in the catholic faith was made dependent upon the wedding taking place before a priest and two witnesses that's like again like now yeah exactly yeah and this is where parental consent was no longer deemed completely necessary wow, so I there we go yeah um, so I think we'll take a little break here. Um, I'm just going to go and ring my mum and check she's remembered to put my dowry aside. Some green shield stamps and <laughs> yeah. some, li some little vouchers. <laughs> Welcome back to We Are History. We're talking about marriage in the year that Angela plans her own wedding. I had to... Um, raise a toast to my son, Freddie, and his wife, Bethany, at their wedding recently. And I raised their glass said, and everyone said, to Freddie and Lily. That's his sister. Oh, no. <laughs> did you say then, that? Did you say to Freddie and Lily? I did. I did. <laughs> and then I was telling this story. I told that story at the American wedding in front of hundreds of guests. Uh. And at the end, I went, anyway, let's raise our glasses to Freddie and Lily. I did okay. it again. <laughs> But don't worry, John, because that time they just thought it was a callback. Yeah, it's they fine. thought it was a callback. Like, oh, he's oh, very great. funny, it's quite convincing. isn't he? It's very it, funny. it was very convincing the way he did it. It seemed like it was a genuine <laughs> mistake. And my son knew it wasn't. It? It's funny. I, I, I um, We're talking about speeches and uh, I think Matt's best man's a bit nervous because obviously at my wedding, there's going to be a lot of comedians oh, yeah. and comedy writers. In, now, you and I know oh, yeah. that we're the best audience because we'll be willing them to do what, you know, we're not going to no, sit No, no, no. My wedding, <laughs> I was all bloody comedians and comedy writers. And now every joke I did... <laughs> You know, all the best man did. They're all stroking their chins going, yeah, that works. Yeah. That's a good game, yeah. <laughs> what a <laughs> nightmare. Oh, dear. Anyway, tell us where we are now. So where we're in we the 16th, so, uh, 17th century now. Yes. Child marriage was a particular issue in the 17th century. There's okay. quite a lot's been written about that, about these sort of young betrothals and things. But yeah, it's just weird. different times. John. Different times, different so times. There was a brief time during, uh, this is quite interesting, during Cromwell's Protectorate in the 1650s yes. where they raised the marriageable age to 14 and 16. Quite so, radical. yeah, much nearer to where we are today. However, that was just during that. Time. And if you want to hear uh, about Cromwell's Protectorate, I know a good podcast about it, John. Oh, we know a podcast about it. We do know that. a podcast about <laughs> So do I, do, I do slightly worry that when Charles II came back and it was like, yeah, let's open the theatres. Yeah, let's have Christmas back. Yeah, let's marry 12-year-olds. Uh, okay. uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Whoa, 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 um, whoa. Whoa, yeah. no, you've got too far there, mate. Yeah. Um, so really, there's the, marriage is just continuing the same way. Hundreds of years, Hundreds yeah. of years. Until the, 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 the next sort of legislation on marriage isn't until um, 1753. And what happened? Would that be Lord Hardwick's marriage? Act? It would I'm just be. Just my bremer memory of reading your notes. <laughs> it would indeed be Lord yeah. Hardwick's marriage act. Now, this was ah. the first state involvement in marriage. Um, up to this point, it had all been canon law, it had all been of church course. law, and this is the first time the state is starting to get involved in marriages. And the reason they do that is because there's a lot of what they call clandestine marriages are happening, uh, which mm -hmm. is where you know young people running away to get married, uh, doing it without yeah. parental consent. Because up to this point, you didn't have to get married in a church, particularly. Not get married in front of a priest. I thought we just said you had to get married in front of a priest. Yeah, but you didn't have to be in a church. Oh, right. Sorry, sorry. Okay. Yeah. I'm being a pedant. Yes, you are, John. So this is the state increasing its control, yeah, isn't it? They're saying, we can't just leave this to the vicars. 
It's, a, it's just the politicians getting involved. Have you heard of fleet marriages, John? They're quite interesting. No. So fleet, fleet marriages. marriages, you have Fleet Prison, which was the famous debtors yeah. prison in London. Due to some bylaw, I think, you could get married in Fleet Prison and its surrounds. So right. people would go, in the way they go to Gretna Green, <laughs> they would go to right. Fleet Prison to get married. Oh, we're going to get married. Where have you booked, darling? Yeah. That lovely little cliff by the, by the, with the, the trees and the river underneath. No, we're getting married at the prison. Exactly. So to put a stop to that, Lord Hardwick's Marriage Act comes into force in 1753. And this stated that each parish had to keep a record of all the marriages registered there. So it's sort of the beginning of a more robust registry. But registration of births, marriages and deaths. It's the beginning of that, yeah. isn't it? Moving towards that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it also meant that there were more stringent conditions for the validity of a, of a marriage. So... From this point onwards, only marriages conducted by the Church of England or by Quakers or under Jewish law were recognised in England and Wales. So, Wow. So if you're a Catholic and you got married by a priest, it wasn't recognised? No, you had to get married in a Church of England. What about humanists? Were they recognised at this point? I don't think at this point they were particularly <laughs> okay, recognised. Okay. The thing is, John, also any other form of marriage was abolished at this point. So children who were born into unions that weren't valid under the Act couldn't inherit the property of their parents, for example. They were illegitimate. Wow. The only exceptions were Quakers and Jewish people who could get married yeah. in their own places of worship. This is the first time that a legal age limit is being set for marriage. Okay, as opposed to a canon one. The Hardwick Act set full age at 21, which means without, oh. without parental consent. But the minimum age for marriage with consent stayed at 12 and 14. Do you know when that law changed, John, the 12 and 14? Oh, probably in southern states in the United States, probably not, not yet. No, no but in, in England. <laughs> uh, or oh, the 19th century? 1929. God, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's ridiculous. So you could get, your parents could marry off at 12 yep. in 1929. Yep. That is amazing. Uh, and in 1929, it moved to 16 for both sexes, but right. still 21 full age without parental consent. Whereas today, you can get married at 16, but with parental consent and 18 without. Okay. And it stays that way until... Marriage Act. And I'm trying to think where the Marriage Act, the next Marriage Act was. Was it 1836, <laughs> the next Marriage Act? It's almost like, John, you can see my notes. Oh, no, I'm just very <laughs> good at history. <laughs> I'm just very... I've done the work. I've read the books. So the Marriage Act of 1836. Yeah. Now, this is exciting, so this... John. Why is this exciting? Uh, this was the... Uh, you're allowed to get married uh, at Alton Towers yeah. on... <laughs> On oh, Thunder Mountain. Not quite, John. Okay. Did you were you did you get married in a registry office? I got married in uh, uh, Kings Road registry office. Oh, I got married in 1990. Mm -hmm. You still could only get married in a church or a town hall. Mm. And for me, Wandsworth Town Hall was uh, Tories had just won a landslide. I'd lost an election there. I don't want to get married in the <laughs> borough where I live. I, I just lost an election yeah. there. I don't yeah. want to get married there. Yeah. So I lied. We lied about living at my parents' flat in um, Notting Hill. So that was the borough of Kensington, Chelsea. And they went, oh, yeah, that's one of our roads. And we got married in the King's Road on the Saturday before Christmas. Lovely. I just want to say as well, like John sometimes tries to convince me he's not as posh as I think he is. But now he's just told me that his parents just had a flat in Notting Hill. Whatever, that's no, normal. No, we're, rich. we're posh. So... <laughs>
<laughs> Sorry, John. My mum was posh. My dad was. <laughs> I think it was Edwina Curry who changed the laws that you could get married at football grounds mm. and nice. Yeah, it's nice... relatively recent. I remember that law yeah. coming in. Yeah, they still it's had good. to be licensed, but they didn't have to be yeah, a civil but, building you know, you necessarily. Do it at the Trafalgar Pub at Greenwich, lovely. Yeah, well, my friend got married there. It's very nice. Yeah, on my the friend river. got married there yeah, too. Lovely. Yeah, do continue with. Uh, you were talking about the Marriage Act for 1836. I understand. It was referred to as the Broomstick Marriage Act in a sort of contemptuous oh, okay. way because it was seen by religious people as a way to to sort of legitimise a sham marriage. Oh, I see. So did that mean that Catholics could get married and stuff like that? At this it point? meant nonconformist Catholic couples could get married in their own places of worship with their own rights. Yeah. Uh, you could get married in non-religious buildings, although there was there's still a religious aspect, I think, a Church of England aspect to the yeah. ceremony. It didn't have to be in a church. So, yeah, this was a really big... Change. Yeah, that's a big change. Yeah, yeah. that's sort of uh, very liberating for people. Just after the um, Catholic emancipation, of course. Yeah. So I suppose things were changing a bit around that point. Exactly. Um, and this. 1829. See, I do know history. Yeah, yeah. John, you are, may I say, <laughs> very good at history. Yeah, I'm very good at history. <laughs> I got a B. I got a B in my history O level. <laughs> I got a B in my history GCSE. No, I got an oh, A. Ha! Oh, you're, be- I'm you're better at history than, than me. you, John. You're better. Well, GCSE. <laughs> What's that? Did you do history A level? I did actually. I got a B in that as well. I didn't do history. Yeah. You started one, didn't you? But it was just. Yeah, I ran out of time. Yeah, but I started one in my 30s for fun and then never finished it. And you thought, I'll do a history podcast it, instead. It pretty much, yeah, because then I get <laughs> yeah. to choose the topics that I study instead. So most of the time in, in, the, in British history, weddings have been overseen by the Church of England. Yeah. Even if you were like Catholic, if you want to be married, you would have had to do it in the Church of England. Absolutely. That right? that's, that's right. Go yeah, on. yeah, yeah. This was also the time that the state first started keeping statistics, national statistics for marriage. What I find interesting about the Victorians, John, is... This is the point when really marrying for love, as we sort of know it today, becomes the thing to do. You have Victoria and Albert, although, Mm. you know, royal marriages tend to be quite strategic, they were very Mm. vocal about it being a love match. I think it would help this if if someone would do some sort of TV or film adaptation (laughs) of a Jane Austen novel... We might get then some sense of what it was like. But just, no, just, just cannot get one for love, not money. <laughs> so Jane Austen's just a bit before that, isn't she? But she's yeah. um, sort of Georgian. Victorians are all like love and romance. So Queen Victoria, I understand, was the one who popularised the white wedding dress. Yes, apparently so. She had one and now it symbolises virginity. <clears throat> and, <laughs> what are you talking um, about, John? I'm wearing white at my wedding. What are you saying? Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, I can't I'll tell you, you anymore because anything. Matt listens to the podcast. So. Not a little Bo Peep outfit. With little <laughs> He's got very puffy sleeves. I, I've gone <laughs> Full meringue, John, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> so we've got the Victorians with their bigger families. Yeah. Birth control start around this time. Well, this is when the whole sort of marriage and procreation doctrine starts to change a little bit because Catholic and Anglican doctrine both put procreation as the primary reason to get married. Yep. But in the late 19th century, there's this sort of feelings change because because more children are surviving. So throughout the Middle Ages up to this point, really in the early modern period, children's survival rates weren't... So low. You know... That was your contraception. Well... Yeah, I'm pregnant, but he's going to die. Yes, so as public health improved, more children are surviving and suddenly families have these massive amounts of children. And so couples start using rudimentary birth control more to limit the number of pregnancies. And you've got the process of sort of decoupling procreation from marriage at some level starts to yes. to happen. Did the Anglican Church accept contraception at this point or did that come no, later? No, that came not till the 30s did 
1930s. 1930s, yeah. That's wow. when artificial contraception was sort of cautiously accepted by the Anglican Church. So they must have had a little conference and they talked about That must have been like embarrassing to, for them to all sit around and talk about this. Absolutely. Talk about rubber johnnies. Absolutely. Um, and of course, for the Catholic Church, procreation yeah. today still remains the essential thing that marriage is about. And technically, I mean, I don't know how much this is actually practiced, but if a couple said they weren't going to have children, technically the Catholic Church shouldn't be marrying them. Wow, that's amazing. I remember Catholic when I was a doctrine. kid, just not quite recently in Ireland, you couldn't get condoms. You know? mm. just, you, people would go up to the north and buy a load and come down with them. Yeah. Where are we up to now? The sort of most recent marriage act, the basis of the current marriage legislation, even though it's been amended several times since, it was the Marriage Act of 1949 that came in in 1950. 1949 was the year my parents got married. Oh, there you go. Marriage for people under 16 was abolished entirely at this point. So right. although I think there were dispensations from the 1929 Act, but right. that was the main change from 1949. The next big change obviously came in 2005, John. Yes, well, this would be under the new Labour government when uh, civil partnerships were introduced. Absolutely. And, uh, I don't think that government gets enough credit for just how forward-looking it was on gay rights. There were no votes in it at the time. It's the controversial and sort of uh, scandalised the Daily Mail and the House of Lords. Age of consent. Uh, was made the same for gay people as for straight people. Gays were allowed in the army and uh, civil partnerships. Yeah. Civil partnerships was like an incremental thing towards marriage yeah. uh, that they that they brought in just to make sure it passed. Absolutely. It I think, yeah. I you know, it's a shame because Iraq sort of overshadowed yeah, everything, yeah, everything else that, that government. Done, but they did, um, but yeah. it is where, you know, credit where it's due. And now, of course, that's been updated so that you can have marriage, gay marriage. And also now you can have a heterosexual civil partnership, which is very recent. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And then in 2013, we had the Marriage Same-Sex Couples Act, which equalises same-sex, sort of up, you could right. upgrade your civil partnership should you want to, to a marriage. So it's right. on an equal footing with heterosexual marriage. Uh, that was given royal assent on the 17th of July, 2013. So it preserves the canon law of the Church of England, which states that, marriages between opposite sex couples only um so yeah. the church of england catholic church church of wales they all still oppose same-sex marriage and uh, so no religious wow. organization is obliged to perform them under the act right. which right. there's obviously still a lot of debate regular debate about because there are lots of church of england clergy who are gay who no. <laughs> uh, out and gay, John. But what about, John? What about when it all goes horribly wrong? Uh, well, you see, you're getting married this year. You I don't am. need to think about this for at least a couple of years. In... About divorce. <laughs> As a child yeah. of parents... Oh, yes, of course. ...who were both divorced... You are divorced. from a broken home. I am from a broken said. home. And both of my parents were divorced twice each. Well, that's pretty good going. So, I tell you, to be divorced know. once is misfortune. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's careless to be divorced <laughs> twice. I think I'm very lucky coming from parents of a divorced uh, family because I think it doesn't set you unrealistic goals of what marriage yeah. is and what I, I've got friends whose parents are still together and very much in love and it has screwed their relationships because their their expectations are so high. <laughs> right, I mean, okay. I know you've managed it, John. Lots of people do well, manage it. COVID has been a bit difficult because my wife tells me that because of the pandemic, I have to live in the cellar for the whole of the year. <laughs> apparently that's just, that's just a thing. Apparently. That's the law. Yeah, uh, no, it is, that's John. That's the law that's she tells right. me. I mean, yeah. as she chucks the food down the wooden steps. <laughs> she, uh, <laughs> you only have pizza, don't you, John? Because she can slide yeah, it under yeah. the door. That's right. But, you know, it's a loving marriage apart from that <laughs> but yeah divorce divorce tell me about yeah up till 1858 
the, the church would occasionally grant you could get judicial separation for three reasons up to this point uh, adultery a partner's heresy which was spiritual fornication it was known as oh, um, oh, yeah. and extreme cruelty but you know also how do you define extreme I'll tell you I'll tell you how we just define extreme cruelty last night Jackie said the old town where we live in Clare is heaving all the pubs are open there's loads of pubs open should we go down there I went, oh, all right, then. We went down there and I said, so which, which, where should we go? Should I get a pint? Oh, she meant, oh, I just meant to have a look. <laughs> have a look at the full pubs yeah. on the day the pub's open Taking again. Taking you to look at a pub, look at, John. That's so Let's look at all so these people cruel. after months and months of pubs closed down. She goes, let's go down. Let's go down. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This reminds me of, like, when I was a kid, my dad used to drive me to, to uh, Gatwick to look at all the people going on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I wonder where they're going. I don't know. I know where oh, we're no. going. Okay. Now we're going to Canberra Sands again, aren't we? <laughs> Thanks. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that's grounds for divorce. Yeah. I've got it now. You would have to obviously prove your grounds for divorce. So a man's impotence, for example, was grounds for annulment. But to prove well, let's it... Move, let's, let's move on this bit. Let's move on this bit. <laughs> we don't need to talk about this. <laughs> I think it's like men would have to go through this humiliating ordeal yep. to yep. make sure yep. that he and his wife weren't just colluding to end a marriage. So uh, this is how the rules read, right? It said the man and woman are to be placed together in one bed and wise women are to be oh, summoned yeah. around the bed for many nights. Well, wise women, that's a turn off for some. I don't think wise women means, you know, that it was right, Susie right. Dent it coming in. It doesn't mean Jermaine Greer <laughs> yeah. and Mary Beard. Oh, so, you know, Susie Dent was the wrong person <laughs> to choose then, wasn't she? Because she's fit. But anyway, um, <laughs> Yeah, they would be summoned around the bed for many nights. And if the man's member is always found useless and as if dead, the couple okay. are able to be separated. Oh, so as long as you could anyway. remain flaccid while some women dance around you. Some wise, you wise could... <laughs> women were checking your member. Yeah, you could remain. If, if, if you Mary could... Beard says nothing's happening, that's good enough for them. <laughs> so in 1670, um, <laughs> Parliament passed an act allowing a certain John Manners, who was Lord Roos, okay. to divorce his wife. And that became the precedent for parliamentary divorces on the grounds of the wife's adultery. But that's it up until that point. All, but that's for the posh, isn't that's it? That's for the posh. And it's only if the wife was being adulterous. Men, do what you like. Right. And it wasn't until the 1857 Matrimonial Causes Act, which let ordinary people divorce. Before that point, divorce was largely only open to men, had to be granted yeah. by an act of parliament and was wow. hugely expensive, only open to the rich. There was a whole business of people faking affairs and all that stuff, wasn't there? Yeah. But even in 1858, the point was it was still expensive. You'd have to go through a legal process. So it was yeah. still only available for the richest people, really. It was too expensive for most people. So what are the grounds on that one? Uh, the grounds on that one uh, were aggravated adultery. This is the first time women, I think, could initiate divorce, really, yeah. on the grounds of aggravated adultery, that their husbands had been guilty of cruelty, desertion, yep. bigamy, yep. incest, yep. sodomy yep. or bestiality. Yep. Got the set. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> and, and if you listen to our Jack the Ripper podcast, um, you know, we talk a lot there about men and women, particularly of the lower classes, couldn't afford to divorce. They would just live separately. And that's why women couldn't receive any financial aid because they were still owned by their husbands. And it was a messy, messy situation, particularly for women who couldn't get out of bad marriages without becoming destitute. Yeah, I mean, in the, in Ireland, in the sort of, you know, right up until quite recently, if a woman was being beaten up by her husband, she couldn't run away, she couldn't divorce. The way that divorce happened was 
her brother and dad and cousins would go round, see that bloke and go, you're moving out or we're going to break all your ribs. And, you know, they remained married but far apart. And that was the sort of the only way it could be made to work. It was yeah. a crazy system. But that was, you know, that was if you were lucky, a woman lucky enough to have uh, brothers and cousins who could exactly. do that for you. But, yeah, you um, had to make a decision as a woman, you know, what's yeah. worse, being destitute, not being able to feed my children or being in an abusive marriage. In 1937, the law was changed to allow other grounds for divorce, including drunkenness, insanity and desertion. But the gates for divorce really opened with the Divorce Reform Act of 69. And that allowed you just to cite marital breakdown as the reason for a split. So yes, up until this point, was... there had to be evidence of cruelty or abuse. Yes, that was a big reform at the time. Mm. It's part of that whole set of reforms brought in by Roy Jenkins as the Home Secretary when he had, you know, we had abortion coming in and mm. legalisation of homosexuality. It was a very progressive social reforming government, that the Labour government of the 1960s. Yeah. It was the first time that was accepted as a thing, really. Marriage was for life, mm. was part of the script, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was like, became less shocking. My mum actually used to, when my sister got divorced, she was always like, well, I stayed with your father, so I don't see why she... It was yeah. like, all right, mum, yeah. don't slag off dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but today, that generation still thought it was something to be endured. Well, it was that you hadn't enjoying. worked hard enough somehow. Yes, exactly. You know, and that yeah. you had... Yeah. I mean, bullshit, obviously. Why should you be yeah. unhappy just because of what, what yeah. reason? But that's I mean, how it was. Um, yeah. And this is the first time where, yeah, you could leave a... Bad marriage. It still wasn't easy. It was still expensive, no. and still, yeah. you know, there were conditions. And all that, yeah. Divorces still favoured men. Uh, maintenance for for a woman, because they were usually yes. the less wealthy spouse, would be calculated on needs, but that would be decided by a man. You know, it was all these yeah, yeah. still very unfair. There was the Matrimonial Causes Act in 1973 added some other reasons for divorce. So you still had adultery, unreasonable behaviour, which pertains to physical violence, verbal abuse insults, threats, drunkenness, drug taking, refusing to pay towards shared living expenses, uh, desertion. So if, if your husband or wife had left you for two off. years right. and then separation. So you could have an agreed divorce after two years of separation if both parties agreed to it. If the divorce was contested by one party, it could be granted after five years of separation. Wow, it's quite a long time, isn't it? That's yeah. right, yeah. And then the next landmark case really for divorce came White v. White in 1996. And it was a couple yeah. who'd run a farming business together. It was worth about £4.5 million. Pounds. They've been married 33 years. And at first, his wife was awarded just £800,000. Right, and she right. took the case to the Court of Appeal, then the House of Lords in 2000, and was finally awarded £1.5 And this was a landmark case because it showed the assets should be split fairly. And, and it was the first time the contribution of a homemaker, you know, if you were at home yeah. because you were raising the family and keeping the household, didn't mean you weren't an equal part in the marriage you know, and, yeah. and financially. Can I just ask, has, has Matt seen you reading this big pile of books on divorce? <laughs> <laughs> as, as you That's you get a really ready. good point. Are you idea? Yeah, <laughs> fine. You, no, as, no, I'm just grabbing another one here. This is a good point. This is interesting. Oh, this is very interesting. <laughs> so I've been, as you, as I mentioned before, I've been adapting Mrs. Doubtfire for the stage. Mm. And uh, my co-writer said he, uh, his wife came into his office once to see him reading Divorce for Dummies. Because <laughs> that starts with a divorce. He's trying to get all the legal points right. What are you reading? Oh, it's just a book on divorce. <laughs> Okay, okay. <laughs> Anything you want to tell me, dear? Yeah, yeah. Anything you want yeah. to say? Well, oh, I, hope, I hope, Angela, that um, all these facts of divorce will be of no use to you going forward. Thank you. As I think, I feel like with Matt, I have not, you know, I think with Angela and Matt, I've not lost a daughter but gained a son. <laughs> Thank you.
you, John. <laughs> well, as you know, my dad's no longer with us. So if you want to come and do the father of the bride speech, John, yeah, feel I'll, free. I'll, I'll come and give you away. <laughs> give you away as property to Matt. Uh, do you know who I'm walking up the aisle with? Uh, your dog. My mum and my dog. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. When I got married, even though it was years ago, I didn't have that whole sort of that whole thing of giving away and that mm. I didn't have a stag night I had a hen night I had a night out with all my favourite women it was fantastic <laughs> well, you see, I've all my got, female friends I, I, um, I'm having a hen trip so my best girlfriends we're going to a nuclear bunker for my hen do oh. <laughs> that's so, that's so we're, we're staying in a <laughs> nuclear bunker overnight for well, what if there's a nuclear war breaks out that night? Your hen night would be the only that's surviving it. human. My, that's it. What a my, film that um, would be. I, I've got like a little WhatsApp group of those of us going on that trip and we've just been booking all the trains right. and stuff for it. And uh, my friend Beck, she just, she texted, I can't wait for this. It's going to be a blast. And I was like, well, if it is, we're in right. the right place. <laughs> we're in so there might be a scenario in which the future of mankind is just a hen night emerging and a new religion will grow up with pink balloons and Angela's Angela's hens on T-shirts. Do you know what's so really funny about it? Because my friend Gavin is the manager of this bunker, which is why right. we're, we're having it for the hen do. But he's going to be there because obviously he's got to let us in and everything. So if, if it does happen, we're down there. It'll be us and Gavin. Oh, God, he's going to repopulate <laughs> to the world. repopulate the earth. Problem is, most of us are in our 40s, so... Oh, well, yeah. oh. I find no Gavin. I find no Gavin. Thank you for taking us through the history of a marriage, Angela. If you're going to do that as your wedding speech, you might want to cut it down a bit. <laughs> hey, people so, like them so, long, John. One thing I do want to say before we, we finish yeah. is the thing I mentioned at the beginning about humanist weddings not being legal. Um, yeah. There are campaigns to try and change that, and... I will tweet out on the day this comes out a link where you can sign a petition and write to your MP if you would like to support uh, humanist weddings becoming recognised in England. You heard it here first, everyone. Sign this petition. Support <laughs> Angela Barnes in her campaign for humanist weddings. Maybe it will be sorted by September when Angela is getting married. <laughs> um, thank you for listening, everyone, to another um, uh, another great episode. Go on, John, remember Angela what Barnes. it's called. Go on. What's, what's the podcast I was going to say, called? a great episode hosted by, it's called We Are we are history or some shit <laughs> we'll be back next week with another thrilling episode till then don't forget to give us your lovely five star reviews on iTunes yeah. they really help get us up the old ratings so you'll it's be so doing us a solid asking for, it so is but we're not beyond week. it though are we John please send a pound <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening everyone catch you next time see ya see ya